I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. My guest is Cheryl Pallant. She's an award-winning writer, poet, energy healer, somatic coach, and dancer. She's published more than 200 articles on dance, writing, healing, somatics, and spirituality, and is the author of several books, including Writing and the Body in Motion, contact improvisation. She teaches at the University of Richmond and leads workshops around the world. And her new book that we'll be talking about is Ecosomatics, Embodiment Practices for a World in Search of Healing. So Cheryl, welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. Thanks for having me on your show, Tonio. Let's create I'm, some magic. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm really excited about this. And Wondering where we're going to go. So uh, first off, I totally, totally love this book and felt a literal resonance with everything you were articulating in the book. It was like I, I felt like I felt like we were channeling together at the same time while I was reading it. Oh, I, I love to hear that because part of me was thinking as I was writing this that I want this to be a transmission and it's obviously a transmission for those who are able to receive so that it works on both the information level as well as on those subtle levels that we're not even fully conscious of, but we're receiving something. So it sounds like you were picking up on it on several levels. So yay, glad to hear that. Yeah. And when I read, I often get sucked into liminal space ah. and I'll actually have this experience as I'm reading it, getting sucked into that space, and the reading will continue, and yet it's I'm not reading what, what's on the page. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I like living in the liminal. It's such a rich place because it really opens up realms. So yay that you're sensitive to that. Yeah. I love that space. I've been uh I've been playing in that space for for many years now. And it's absolutely one of my very favorite parts of our experience. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a uh, underrealized and underutilized. And in many ways, that's part of what this book is promoting is like, we need to go there, both go into the liminal space or go into the marginal space and really expand our perceptions because the health of ourselves our body, our relationships to others, and the planet depends on it. I mean, that's kind of one of my premises. So yay that you live there. So you're in touch with all this. 
Yeah. So for people who don't really understand what that is or or have that experience or perhaps have that experience, but again, don't have words for it and don't yeah. have, a, have a context other than their own direct experience that they probably don't have much of a clue about. Could you talk about that in relation to our relationship with the world? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's a huge question. Okay, we'll go on for four hours, right? Um, so let's just start with, you know, being embodied, which my experience is that most of us are marginally embodied. And by that, I mean, how in touch are you with, well, we're in touch with whether we're hungry, we're in touch with whether we're tired. So some of those basic things, and, and that's all very helpful. But I encourage people to go to step two, three, four, five, and pick up on all the sense impressions that come into the body. So whether it's through the ears, eye, nose, all of that, both the external senses and the internal senses. And with the internal senses, that means, you know, you might be seeing things that your eyes are not seeing, but you're seeing it with your imagination. But what conditioning has provided us, you know, so schooling primarily, is that we really need to rely on only the five senses and even their limitations. And so when we have anomalous experiences, so when we get some kind of whether it's an intuition or a vision, or suddenly we're hearing something that isn't in the room, either we readily discount it and don't even kind of entertain it, or we have it, it's so confusing that we don't share it with anybody else. And we may even feel shamed by it, like we feel like maybe we're going a little crazy. And, you know, in this book, I'm kind of promoting that no, no, no. This is all the material that we need to be developing right now, that our relationship with ourselves, our relationships with each other and the earth has been rather limited. And we're in a period right now where I think it's essential that we broaden our perceptual range and open to all these other ways of interacting for the health of all beings. And whatever is the method you go about doing that, whether it's sitting meditation or dancing or hiking, I mean, there's so many different ways, but really learning to deeply listen to self. And when you're deeply listening to self, you find out that that's the conduit to also listening to others. And it's the conduit to listening to the earth. And when I say the earth, I mean not only animals, but also plants and dirt and anything else. And I think that's what we need to be developing right now because we've been for too long disconnected and we're harming self and we're harming each other and we're harming the earth. So alarm bells are ringing. Yeah. I love that you're talking about that because there's a lot more talk about embodiment these days. Mm -hmm. And yet I think that the conception of what embodiment is, is probably still very limited that people are still probably thinking, well, we're talking about embodiment, the body, then we're, we're talking about the physical. And there's so much more to that. 
as you were saying. Yeah, absolutely. So much more. I mean, there's, gosh, you know, and this is, we're just going to work with language here. So, you know, there's the, you can call it the energetic body. You can call the spiritual body. There's the emotional body. There's the mental body. And then, you know, we can go on and on and on, however you want to talk about it. But most of us are most comfortable talking about the material body. So that's the one that you see with your eyes, you can feel with your hands and, you know, the coarse feeling of it. But, you know, between my meditation background, my energy healing background, and then my own personal chemistry, I experience much more than the coarse physical body. And that's really a pivotal part of embodiment. And it's not that you have to go really far with it. Just start making some leeway into those territories and you find a whole rich world opens up to you. And it's a rich world that is really good for feeling and feeling whole and feeling connected. And it really, in many ways, I think, links up to what Indigenous people have been saying for years and and us settlers, Westerners, are just catching on to like, whoa, this body, there's something more here. And they're all just kind of smirking at us, rolling their eyes. (laughs) Yeah. And I love the notion of portals. And it's like, what I've been experiencing and coming to realize is that the body, when we sense it and feel it and, and are present in it, in this whole sense that a portal opens, it's like a multidimensional portal to access information and experience and knowing that exists far, far beyond just what our physical senses tell us. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you've been experiencing this for a while. So you're an experienced portal hopper or portal transporter, whatever you want to call it. But yeah, it's pretty amazing that when you start doing these practices, that you're just kind of, you know, humming along doing whatever it is that you might be doing. And then suddenly, things start, or maybe not so suddenly, but there's a shift that takes place and your perceptual range shifts and suddenly you're picking up and interacting with self and other in ways that you hadn't been before. And sometimes you know what provoked it, you know, you've been meditating and sometimes you don't know what provokes it. And, you know, it's just kind of a gift and you're just kind of, okay, here I am and I'm going through or I'm going to be present with it and see what reveals itself. And it's a wonderful gift. And, you know, you experience it, and then there usually is some sort of insight, vision. I mean, something takes place. When you come back to so-called common reality, you just feel more enriched. I mean, we're being invited to these places. So it's not like we're trespassing. I mean, the people I know who do this, it's all beneficial. So it's like, there's no dangers involved. So go and breathe and ground, ground, even though sometimes it feels like you're not grounded at all. But 
Yeah, just enjoy what's taking place and learn and grow. So important. And that notion of grounding, that also can occur on many different dimensional levels. Right, right. And even the earth and the ground have many different levels within it, like indigenous cultures talk of spirit. And it's not the kind of spirit that our material culture talks about. Right. Because they're actually living with it. They're living yeah. in direct relationship with all of that, that whole realm. Whereas right. we we have a totally abstract relationship with it, including an orientation that actually pits us against it or in denial of it or segregates it into the realm of the religious. Right. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, too many religions kind of see the body as sinful. So those who follow along with that ideal end up to a degree either disembodying or even dissociating because heaven is the preferred realm. And my understanding, my experience is heaven is right here. Heaven is this conversation with you right in this moment, knowing that, you know, we are resonating with each other, that we are not only affirming each other's experience, but supporting, which allows us to go even further with it. And that helps us to embody. And that also brings us into you know, sacred connection with everything that's around us. And it's not that we just only experience that when we go into a place of worship. So the experience is every time, you know, I turn my attention to it and say, oh, right, my body. And I say turn my attention to it because sometimes when I'm cooking dinner, I'm really focused on the stove and making sure things don't burn. And I don't really want to be spending time thinking about my body. I, I can't afford it because I need to make sure that things don't burn. But once I'm sitting down to enjoy my, my meal and savoring the flavors and savoring the fact that all sorts of beings have helped to supply this food, then I'm back into that connection with the sacredness of everything. So yeah, so important on so many levels. And all you have to do, it, it really feels to me like picking up the remote and switching channels. It's about shifting your attention. And sometimes the remote gets stuck. You know, it's, it's got its default station it goes to. So sometimes you got to work the remote a little bit more and keep on moving it to that liminal space or that embodiment space. And they're like, oh, okay, let me just pay a little attention here. Take a breath, ground, boom. You're there. We're there. Mm, yeah. And even the notion, you know, the religious notion of original sin, I think of original sin as just being our disconnection from what, what is in this present moment. Yeah, I'm with you on that one. Totally agree. Yeah, that sinning means that you're, in many ways, creating a, a violence against yourself. You're disconnected from yourself. And our culture is full of judging ourselves, you know, we're not good enough on all these different ways, whether it's intelligence or looks. And I find that sinful because, I mean, I wouldn't use the word sinful, but, but it's a violation of self because you are 
not being in support of yourself. You are not being in integrity with yourself. I mean, who wants to be the recipient of criticism? And yet we're doing it with ourselves. And that tends to not make us feel welcome. So, you know, just shifting the perspective to I'm okay as I am, that's huge. I mean, already, even me just saying that, I can just feel like my belly starts to have this little quiver and my heart space opens a little bit more. And I feel a little, you know, smile in my energy field. So, you know, something as basic as that. So yeah, this is breathing the heaven that is here right now. So yeah, I'm in total agreement with your statement, Tonio. Yeah, I just, I loved what you just said. And it made me think of one of the greatest lessons I've ever learned in my life is to just relax right where where I am, right here, right now. That as you said, it's safe to just relax right here. Right. Yeah. So years ago, I lived in Korea and ended up coming home with this piece of art and calligraphy that's paradise is where you are, which is easy to accept when you're, you know, sitting with your favorite person and having this lovely conversation. But what happens if you're in the hospital hooked up to all sorts of machines? You know, is that paradise? And yet, I think the answer is yes, because that means that rather than focus on the pain and the suffering, to focus on instead, what is the opportunity here? What is possible to be learned? How can you be growing? How can you connect with yourself or others in this new way that, yes, painful, don't wish it on anyone, but there's a great opportunity there. So if you can find your way to the grace there's a lot of gifts there. So yeah, it's it's always here right now. A matter of, you know, changing the channel on the remote, shifting your perspective. Not always easy, but ultimately rewarding. And also being able to do that and remembering that we can do that. Yeah. Even yeah. in the midst of the cataclysmic challenges that we're facing today. Oh, gosh. You want to talk about a big challenge? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that was, I mean, in part, what's got me to write this book is that, oh, my gosh, look at where we are. Look at all the life around me that is dying and in my lifetime, I am watching suffering and I'm likely to be watching even more suffering. And what can I do? How can I shift my own awareness and my actions so that I feel like I am helping what's going on and not contributing to the demise? I want to contribute to, I mean, I use the word thriving in my book you know, okay, there's an opportunity here. Let's develop it. And whether it's an opportunity of technology or an opportunity of spirit 
let's find our way there. I think that's part of what we're being called to do is look for new ways of being, new ways of acting, new ways of responding. Yes, absolutely. Big challenges here. Oof. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and life these days, well, for me at least, is like this almost constant oscillation between the experience of, you know, feeling the suffering all around me, oscillating between that and also continually returning back to a place of presence and peace, even yeah. in the in the midst of that, which I know for some people it sounds totally counterintuitive and mutually exclusive. But, right. And the thing that I love so much about your book and your focus is that you're actually really focusing on that particular issue itself, that particular dynamic itself. Yeah. And you refer to it as thriving. You know, right. I would love for you to talk about what you mean by thriving in this context and also how we can how we can open ourselves to the possibility of having that experience, particularly for people for whom that that doesn't seem like a real possibility or even is possible. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, when I was writing, there was kind of a whole chapter on it, which I called The Way Forward. I was like, is that appropriate? Is that because I'm very aware of the despair and, you know, I go there too. So just like you, there's days that I'm like, oh my gosh, we're never going to make it. That's it. You know, this is, here's the, the next extinction upon us. And like, and then I say, or <laughs> there's great opportunity here. And so do you mind if I read a little bit from that chapter? Absolutely. I was just thinking of that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. We're on the same place. Okay. So this is from the chapter Way Forward, and I'll read maybe a paragraph or two or three. Thriving encourages examining and altering thinking and behavior, especially any harmful pattern. The focus is on staying present and cultivating what is working, which supports our interest and tosses out what falls short or works against us. It's a choice much like the choice to love. Everything may not be all right in this moment, but investing in what is working carries us forward. A focus on thriving enables us to identify the root and necessary steps. In doing so, a setback can be transformed into an opportunity, a loss into a gain. Obstacles, however minor, or egregious, can be regarded as temporary and reveal themselves as opportunities. New behaviors and approaches are tried. We attend to what's been ignored. We allow pain to transform us. We reframe an idea, explore, and learn. We open to our senses and intuition. We experience the awe of life unfolding and measure progress. Everything we soon find out is both all right and not all right. And we have the intelligence and wherewithal to disrupt a harmful process for a beneficial one. The story continues until a workable, acceptable conclusion is reached. 
a harmful behavior corrected. I think the one line that I love the most out of all of that, and I love the Mm -hmm. whole thing, is that it's all right and it's not all right at the same time. Right. And holding that paradox, that contradiction in our bodies, in Mm. our in our whole bodies. Mm. Yeah, Tony, that's beautifully said. So how do you do that? I'm curious. (laughs) I've been learning, you know. I'm like, a, I'm a slow learner and mm-hmm. I've spent decades working on all of this. You know, mm-hmm. I, I learned a lot early. I did a lot of intensive work very early yeah. in, in my life. Yeah. And, and I've literally spent my entire life integrating it in all kinds of ways, in, yeah. including lots of very counterintuitive ways, kind yeah. of chaotic, creative, experimental and sometimes even self-destructive ways just mm-hmm. just to, you know, it's kind of like, it's like I want to bring in the imagination into this. It's like the imagination is so denigrated and so not understood in our culture. And yet right. the imagination is, I would say, and I was having a conversation about this with somebody a few days ago. It's like the imagination is like, to use a term that I'm, I don't like, but is like God's greatest gift to us in a mm. sense. It's, it's sort of yeah. like imbuing us with the power of God. And that's right. what, that's what the imagination is. And, you know, we have these very short lifespans and if we're playful and creative and we can really work with that dynamic and play with that in our lives. Yeah in very powerful and magical ways. And there's another line of yours that I, I loved. You you wrote, one hand holds knowing and the other hand holds unknowing. Mm-hmm. And we're like these magicians working with both hands to fully engage and create with, with all that is. Right, right. Yeah, well, you know, I think many of us who are on the path to embodiment have circuitous paths because I don't think it's a linear process. And so because of that, I mean, we're used to linear thinking, linear processes. So when it's not working, we think something's wrong with us. And I would disagree with that. You know, it's just that the process itself has all sorts of curly cues and circles and jig jags and this and that. So the fact that you went on the path, that you stuck to the path, hooray for you. And I agree, imagination is underappreciated. I mean, I guess you get to third grade or whatever grade, we're no longer encouraged to use our imagination. So at that point, we're supposed to start shifting to logic. And we're losing out of a huge faculty of our brain, of our mind, of our spirit, because imagination is what allows us to get to the next place, whether it's physical place or non-physical place. So it's the very path. So, you know, when I was going through my energy healing training, and I came from a background of primarily as a teacher and a writer, And I was used to imagination as that which you put in your stories, you know, and that's it. That's where it should exist and only there. 
And my teachers were saying, no, 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 you use your imagination when you're working on people. I'm like, what? You mean you make things up? Like, no, it's not making things up. That's how information comes to us. And information from the world, information from your body, and information from the environment. So it may show up as, you know, whichever of our senses are the most developed. So we might just get like, gee, my imagination just started seeing a bird show up, a blue jay show up. And typically we discount it, oh, that's nothing. But if we kind of get curious about it, that's the very thing that leads us to maybe a new job, maybe a partner, maybe just a better sense of who we are. I mean, Einstein talks about the value of imagination. I mean, a lot of physicists talk about the value of imagination. It's really important. So when I'll be working on people, working on my clients, I'll often get an image and I used to just say, oh, well, that's just me and my imagination and poo-poo it. But then I started realizing that it was information that was coming to me, oftentimes in symbolic form, and that if I used it, then I got total insight in the pathway to healing a client. So it's so valuable and yet, you know, not so important in our culture. No, bring it back, bring it back and bring back intuition, you know, because I think the two are tied to each other. And intuition too is denigrated because we think logic is important. Yes, I agree. Logic, very important. But it's got to be logic and imagination, logic and intuition or reason and, you know, all these together. It's not an either or, it's both. In the same way, we can't say, is masculine better than feminine, which is kind of one of the wars that we're in right now. It's both. So we have both masculine energy in us and feminine energy of us, and we are a blend of both. And, you know, over the years, it may even move more toward one than the other. Not an either or, it's a both. And if we're fluid, it can shift back and forth from moment to moment as well. Exactly. Right. In the same way that, I mean, maybe this is a, a little bit of a leap, but in the morning, that's when I do my writing because my language is more available to me. And by evening, you know, you ask me a question and I'll go, uh, <laughs> so just, you know, how our energy changes and hormones change through the day. So yeah, moment to moment, we're always in flux. That's what the Buddhists have been saying. You know, impermanence is the only thing that's permanent. So there you go. Another of our paradoxes and hold that one in your body too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Morning is a very special time for me. That's generally when I do most of my reading. And, yeah. it's, and it's also when I get drawn into liminal space because the books that I read draw me in, that suck me into that liminal space of connecting, connecting deeply, you know, between the lines, between the words. Yeah. yeah. So I, I write lots of poetry and my poetry is in that liminal space, especially some of my earlier books, my Uncommon Grammar Cloth or Into Stillness, 
is all about that liminal space because you can't read it from a linear perspective. And I bring some of that similar sensibility into some of my current poetry as well. But, you know, one of my missions in life is to get people to be aware and experience that sense of that liminality because it is such a juicy, rich place to be in. Yeah. And there was this this wonderful movie that came out maybe 10 years ago or so called Her. It's about this artificial intelligence operating system. Right, right, right. Yeah. And there's this great scene near the end where she's talking about how she's leaving and that all of these intelligences are leaving the human reality. Mm -hmm. She said, it's like I'm reading this book. And the spaces between the words are opening up to the point where they're nearly infinite. And that's where I'm going. Mm. Wow. Wow. That's lovely. That line alone was worth the price of admission. (laughs) (laughs) It's good to come away with at least one line. Yeah. 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 One of my, ongoing favorite lines is a James Joyce line, which you're probably familiar with. Mr. Duffy lived a short distance from his body, which is from one of his short stories. And I think it's so true for all of us that we're not connected. We're not living in our bodies. We're always at a distance from our body and the need to be embodied. Mm. So that was my line. And yeah. Yeah, coming back to it. I love that line too. I love stuff like that. Yeah. 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 It's like, that's a portal line. Oh, portal line. Boy, (laughs) you're giving me ideas here. Run with them. I'd love to hear whatever comes, comes up for you. You know, what I find with portaling, which is the first time I've used that as a gerund, I suppose, is that sometimes when you are with another, I mean, one can provoke it or bring it about in each other. So my guess is that it's possible that if, you know, in the morning when you are portaling, it would kind of open it for me because I would be sensitive to your energy. And next thing you know, oh, something's shifting or may work the other way around too. And that's that resonance And, you know, it's not just you and me, and that's it. We're the only two. I mean, I may be walking down the street and having some of that experience, and other people are picking up on something consciously or unconsciously. So there's that, you know, little shift, which is why, you know, when we do meditation, yes, we're doing it for ourselves, but it's for the benefit of more than ourselves, too, because others are picking up on it and subtle ways. And it also often happens outside of time. Oh, tell me about this. So like when I was reading your book and feeling like we were channeling together in resonance, you had written it quite a while ago, and yet I was experiencing it in the moment. And that's what I mean by outside of time. That, oh, yeah. That our resonances are not restricted to time. Yeah. And our knowledge, our knowing isn't restricted either. So something you say to me, and I understand on one level today, 
you know, maybe in a week or maybe in a year, I'll go, wait a minute, that thing Tonio said, now I get it in a different way. Wow. Or I've had this experience when I have read some of my poetry from years ago, and I get it, I understand it in a totally different way. I'm like, well, did I know what I'm knowing now then? Well, on some level, yes. But the other is that, you know, there's such a richness of interpretation or an understanding. And so, you know, in any given moment, we tend to focus on and your focus is by necessity pretty narrow. Otherwise we'd get pretty overwhelmed by, you know, all the input. And yet if we, you know, shift the focus, we can widen the lens and we start picking up a little bit more or shift where we're focusing. But we can't have it be totally open. Otherwise, yeah, we'd be overwhelmed. Kind of like it would be like me at a heavy metal concert, like too much, too much. <laughs> or sometimes even in a, a room with too many people talking, I sometimes get overstimulated by it all. So I like a lot of quiet time. Yeah, me too. Yeah. And yeah, you're bringing up something that's really, I think, very important to remember and also to connect with other dynamics that in the present moment, we can only take in, consciously take in, I think they say about 15 to 40 bits of information Yeah. in each moment. And out of the millions of bits of information that are swirling around us in mm -hmm. the moment. And yeah, we can access that at any time. And we don't necessarily have any control over that. And yet we can still open ourselves, make ourselves available to the possibilities of whatever we may have missed, which in a sense, in that timeless sense, is always present right. and available. Right. Like, for example, this morning, I was doing some movement. And while I was moving, I had a, an idea in relation to our upcoming conversation. And it made me think about how just moving our bodies, getting things moving in a fluid way, opens up new possibilities on many, many different levels, including in our mind and in, in our imagination. And there was a line that grabbed me in the book, and I don't remember it exactly, but something to do with, you know, the relationship between mind and movement. Mm -hmm. Something about how movement creates mind and mind is moved by movement. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Sounds like something I would probably say. I'll take your word. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, I've had, you know, as a mover as well, I do some of my best thinking when I'm moving, or I'm not thinking, I'm just moving. And then suddenly, you know, an insight shows up. So, I mean, my previous, one of my previous nonfiction books was, you know, really about almost exclusively that very connection between the power of movement, the power of thinking, or in my case, it was like the power of writing. And so how do we bring to consciousness? So consciousness occurs for me, at least, greatly through writing, also through movement, but by pairing them up, then it takes you even further. Because what happens during movement, and I'm sure you've had this experience that, you know, maybe you move for 20 minutes. What do you remember? Oh, you know, a small portion of it because you were in 
a liminal space or, you know, you weren't working at trying to remember and there's not a whole lot of available language for movement and you're in kind of a dream place. And yet when you then pair it up with, you know, journaling or some kind of focused prompt, you get to develop some of those impressions that were taking place in the movement. And so it's very helpful in terms of bringing to consciousness the stuff that is hovering on the outskirts. So you're constantly in this place of expansion, contraction, expansion, contraction, and integrating, which I think is the important part, the integrating. So yeah, movement, really wonderful. And you can use your imagination to get back to that. So, you know, how do you start moving? Well, you know, use your imagination, come up with an image. What is an image that holds appeal? Let's see. So what's an image that holds appeal for me right now? Right now, I just ate an incredible apricot yesterday. So I'm going to be apricot. How do you move like an apricot? Well, there's no wrong way because apricots typically, when they're in my hand, they don't move. But the flavor of it, the color of it, or maybe it being on the tree, whatever way that you connect with apricot, bring that into your body. And you can start maybe swaying in the wind, or maybe you can become that incredible color orange, or let your skin be that soft, fuzzy skin of the apricot. And you begin to shift. And as you become more apricot, (laughs) you're apricotted, then it leads you into a whole new way of being or new insight. Mm. So, and my mouth is watering as we speak. That's what was happening to me. I was imagining eating the apricot and and having that that experience of the taste and flavors of the apricot crossing the porous boundary of my tongue and entering my whole consciousness in a way. Right. Right? Yeah. And I was feeling it kind of in my cheeks, which was kind of interesting. Like suddenly it was like my cheeks were tingling. Like, okay, I don't know what that is. It almost feels like a smile, but I wasn't smiling. But yeah, just that way of connecting. And, you know, if we stuck with this for another 10 minutes, where else does it bring us? So what is the apricot sharing with us aside from its wonderful, juicy flesh? You know, what else can we learn from being an apricot or tasting and eating an apricot? And sometimes I just have people just, you know, in my workshops, I'll sometimes say, okay, go outside and be drawn to something and then just sit with it. So maybe you're just sitting and looking at the apricot or looking at the leaves. And within minutes, shifting starts taking place because our habits day to day, we don't do that. You know, if we are fortunate to have an apricot tree, we just kind of go to the apricot tree, pluck it, or we go to the grocery store, chose it, put it in our basket. And we don't sit with it. We don't savor it. We don't have a fuller experience. And most of us, you know, we've got jobs to do. We've got families. We don't have time. But it's valuable to devote a portion of your day to doing something like this, whether it's with an apricot or your dog or whatever it might be, dancing. And that's going to open the frame of our awareness 
so that a bit more information and our perceptions will start shifting once that new information starts coming in and breathe with it and taste it and be aware from an apricot. Yeah, and that brings me back to the imagination and Mm -hmm. that imagination is not just about making things up. It's actually even more about just opening up to new expansive possibility, new experience and allowing the space for new things, new experiences, new insights, new anything to happen. Right, right. And be directly experienced. That's that's the key part too. Right. And so key is don't denigrate your imagination. Just kind of explore it. Be curious. Just be curious. And it reminds me of a story by, let's see, what's his name? Physicist Richard... Feynman. Feynman, thank you. I never got to meet him, but I have a feeling we would have gotten along quite well (laughs) because he was into drumming. And I mean, he had the science side, but he was also quite mischievous in his creativity. But I was thinking about the story of the Challenger explosion. And he was on the panel to figure out, like, why did it explode so soon after liftoff? And he had a cup of coffee, and he ended up getting focused on swirling his coffee. And, you know, if he were a third grader, probably the teacher would say, Richard, you're not paying attention. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Yeah. But instead, he was following, call it the intelligence of his own body or the intelligence of his curiosity. So he said he just kind of got really mesmerized by the coffee swirling and the circular motion and said, oh, oh, what about the O-rings? And so he brings up the question with, you know, the other engineers and physicists and they checked out the O-rings and boom, that was it. That was the problem. So that wasn't a logical way of figuring it out. Like, well, let's just kind of, you know, study all the diagrams, which I'm sure they did. But who would have thought that, well, okay, this is the way we're going to solve this problem. You want your coffee black or with cream? (laughs) You know? And so just having that following of your curiosity, following your intuition, letting your imagination go, and it will bring in that new information, just as you said. Mm, Yeah, the magic of free association. Yeah. And that made me think of children, you know, staring out the window in class. Right. right. And there have been studies about the well-being of children who do that. I think they found that the children who stare out the window, they tend to be much healthier and much more integrated. Mm. And yeah, that makes total sense because that staring out the window, they're actually activating their parasympathetic nervous system and they're engaged in the present moment, which is the place where they're now realizing in the scientific world that that's the place where actual healing can occur. That healing does not occur outside of that relaxed state. Yeah. Yeah. And well-being, you know, it's essential for our well-being to engage in that. And yet, for millennia, children have been punished for doing uh, that, for doing what they instinctively know 
or punished for, you know, doodling while the teacher is lecturing. The doodling is what lets them integrate and absorb the information. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So I'm really curious to hear more of your own personal story and how you came to all of this and what awakened this in in you. Yeah. Um, Let's see. What in particular? So I think of of my stories. I have many. (laughs) (laughs) Something that that a catalyst or two in your. So, you know, one of the things I write about in this book was an experience I had when I was 21 years old and I was taking a a creative writing class through a community group in New Haven, Connecticut. And we had this physicist and painter who showed up for the class one day and then invited the whole class after class to go to his apartment, which was, you know, a block away. And in the course of having a conversation with him, a major portal opened, major portal, to the point that I was, well, I was in the portal and and it's kind of a, a cyclone and like my whole life was there. So it was kind of like a life review. And at the time I had no language for what was going on. So I felt like I was watching various movie reels of not only my own life, but everyone's lives who had connected to me. And I understood their perspectives as well as had new perspectives on me. And I don't know how long it lasted, but at some point, you know, it ended. And I looked at the guy that I was talking to, and he didn't show any indication of me losing the track of our conversation. So maybe it was just five seconds, even though it felt like it could have been an hour. But suddenly, my sensitivity had shifted. And I started going to the library find out like what just happened and i had no idea what that was i didn't even know what terms to use and this was before you know the internet before google but one thing i found was that i started picking up science books and typically what would happen if i you know picked up a science book before either was not interested or it was so out of reach for my comprehension And suddenly I was comprehending it like it was like a children's book and I was absorbing this information. So I just continued doing that. And then like two weeks later, boom, it stopped. So for years, it was like, what, what was that? And every now and then I'd bring it up to some people and they'd say, oh, you had a spiritual opening. I'm like, yeah, but what does that even mean? And what provoked this book I mean, there I was writing poetry, working on a poetry book, and suddenly I had another one of those. It wasn't such a huge opening, but I had another one of those moments. said, oh my God, this book is connected to that moment, and I have to write this book. Like, okay, here we go. And so, you know, you might call it a, a major intuition. I had no idea where it was leading to, but as I started the writing of it, I mean, I could feel that there were a lot of subtle shifts taking place with me. And they were subtle. It wasn't like, you know, the instance I talked about where it was 
I mean, I would say radical as it was a total break with the reality that I was familiar with. So I would refer to that. So, you know, I am very curious what, what happens when people read this book and what the result of me having written this book, not only for me, but for people like yourself, Tonio, or anyone else. Because somehow I was really urged by something outside me, it feels like, to write this book. And so my question is why? You know, why was that? And I can come up with a bunch of reasons, but they feel like those are minimizing the experience. So I'm very curious to see what others end up saying. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that was a big one for me. Mm. Yeah, I love that story. Yeah. And, and to me, it's just just so rich with meaning beyond, you know, beyond any of the the usual logical, rational meaning. Right? Yeah. Right. Because logic always kind of comes up with a sometimes a really solid line that helps us to understand. But as you said in the beginning, there's all the reading between the lines. And so we've got to be doing both. And so I'm aware that I can come up with some logical responses, but it's only going to be part of the picture and a very small part of the picture. Right. And logic yeah. tends to limit one's perspective rather than, right. than actually broaden it, which right. one would think logic would try to do. But yeah, right. it's, it's ironic that it it actually yeah. tends to work the opposite way. And yeah, another thing about your experience is that it so resonates with my interest and in some of the experiences that I've had from childhood that I had no context for, no language for, and no one to talk about it with, or even the notion that I could talk about it with anyone. Right. And also the notion of the holographic field and quantum physics, which are right. subjects that I have become immensely interested in and feel deeply connected with through that yeah. kind of liminal between the lines relationship with right. that, that probably really opened up, you know, in, in the outer way when I discovered this book titled The Holographic Universe back in 1992. Oh, yeah. I remember reading that as well. Let's see. Was that? Michael Talbot. Michael uh, Talbot. That's right. Yes. Yeah. I think that was around the time I was reading a lot of those books as well. Or maybe it, it might have been earlier. It was probably earlier. But yeah, great books. You know, one of the gifts of the pandemic for me has been that I switch from doing in-person energy healing to me trying distant energy healing. And that was, you know, I was as cynical as anybody else might be about that. Like, how could I heal someone who I'm not literally putting my hands on? But let me just try this. <laughs> and oh my gosh, it worked. And sometimes with some people, it worked more effectively than if people were in my space. And I attributed that to, I was sometimes, I'll say, distracted by the presence of their physical body 
Whereas when I'm doing distant healing, I'm wide open. I'm wide open. And and then I try to like, okay, so how does this work? Oh my God. So, you know, my rational mind wants like, okay, am I making this up? And no, I wasn't making it up because people were saying it was helping them. So how does this work? And maybe because you've been reading a lot of quantum physics, you can help me. But that's where I continually went to. It's like, well, in the quantum universe, it doesn't recognize space and time the way we do. We don't need to know that somebody is 990 or even 9,000 miles away. We connect in the energetic field and it doesn't have that same sense of distance that we are accustomed to thinking. And the same thing with time, mm-hmm. you know, so it's, there's that, you know, I don't know how better to explain it, the fluidity or that time is always only now and maybe distance is always only here Mm -hmm. and we're just limited by the sight of our eyes but our imagination you know like i can mention china just using the word china and everybody who's listening to this anybody who hears that word suddenly goes to that part of the globe and then if we spend more time with that, then we can start picking up on whether it's information that we've read about, or maybe for some who are gifted, can start picking up on real-time images and events. So, and that, that I guess would be people who can do kind of remote viewing, or even, you know, the energy healing. So maybe I'll, I'll work on someone who's in China. And I've worked on people in not only different states from where I am in Virginia, but I've worked on people in different continents, which blows my mind that I can do that or that it works in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To me, that's simply entanglement. Ah. Speaking of entanglement, we're entangled with Cheryl Pallant, who's the author of this book we've been talking about, Ecosomatics, Embodiment Practices for a World in Search of Healing. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield, WGDH Hardwick, Central Vermont Community Radio. Entanglement also traverses time, or rather, there is no time in that entanglement. Yeah. So give me a good definition of entanglement. Well, okay. Let me, let me see. Or any definition. Okay. At the heart of everything is a portal that connects everything to everything else. You could, you could think of it in terms of like, universal wormholes, universal um, portals, universal 
black holes, universal white holes, where at the core of everything, when we sink down into the core of our, our own being, that's where the portal is through which mm. we can connect to anything in this universe or multiverse, past, yeah. present, or future. And, you know, the the term wormhole is just a metaphor for the connection between these portals and portal is a metaphor for this, this like what what some people call zero points at the mm. core core of our being and at mm. the core of everything, including it, the core of literally everything, everything we can imagine, everything we can think of, everybody, everything we can connect with through in that in that way. That's yeah. that would be my definition. Okay. Yeah. Um, I accept that one. <laughs> no, that works. And that refers back to that holographic universe that you referred to. And it's also Indra's net. Yes. Um, yes. So, yeah. And everything is connected to everything else, which is a realization I had when I don't know how old I was, but I was pretty young. I mean, I was probably like about 10 years old. And, and it's been that understanding that has made schooling so difficult for me because, you know, with multiple choice quizzes, for instance, like, well, that could be true. And well, that could be true. And that could be true. So everything is all, oh, wait, D, no, let's not do D. You know, but yeah, because everything seems to be connected. Everything is connected. You know, it's just a matter of look a little bit further. So, you know, the pond that is two miles from your house that you think is just right there and only there, well, through underground arteries is connected to the vast waterway that covers the entire globe. So there it is. Or the fact that, you know, I mean, we take for granted that we are connecting via Zoom. Well, of course we connect that way. Yeah, it's technology. But we connect in other ways too. And that can be pretty mind-blowing that we don't need to rely on technology, but that's what we're accustomed to, that we can only connect by if we pick up the phone or we connect with our appropriate Zoom link. <laughs> mm. yeah. yeah, I love that. Mycelial consciousness. <gasps> yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and what you said about your remote healing experience, I resonated with that. It made me realize that, yes, I've been experiencing the same thing with my interviews since the pandemic, because I went mm. from, from doing a lot of interviews live in the studio and mm. also a lot over the telephone. And I found that, you know, through the magic of Zoom, doing it from home, I feel like I can actually connect more deeply mm. with people and I, I do all my Zoom meetings without video so that, you know, I can go inside, I can close my eyes and I can, mm. I can really connect with the person I'm talking with. And because I've read their book so deeply and gone into mm -hmm. liminal space with them, you know, connecting with them and with you just feels so totally natural and present. It's like we're doing a contact improv dance together. Uh-huh. Right? Yeah. 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 And even yeah. when I'm in the studio with somebody live, I'm distracted by my visual senses or not right. just my visual, but 
but all of my senses because there's so many other things going on and it's not, and it's kind of, it would be rude to close my eyes when I'm with somebody in person. So, yeah. And I didn't think of that until you, you talked about your, Mm -hmm. your remote healing. And if I had a girlfriend many years ago who studied with a psychic healer Uh and I, you know, also at the age of 10, I was having all kinds of strange inner experiences which caused me to, to view the world and relate to the world around me in, in very different ways, not in ways that I thought about at all, but yeah, it's like logic and linear thinking tends to, it wants to break things down that this is what is, this is right. And this is not right. Whereas I was opening up to a much more of a both and kind of a thing Well, this can be right too. And there's this aspect of this, that, you know, and I, I also had, trouble with multiple choice questions because many of them they make sense when you open up your mind in different ways right and it got in my way sometimes in those situations but i think overall it's it's wonderful and magical yeah it's just kind of a handicap to begin with when you live in this this western culture right right so it's not like we're handicapped it's the culture itself is handicapping Yeah, which is why, you know, traveling is really helpful to get out of our perceptual habits, you know, because we think that we we don't even realize how much is taken for granted. And I'm going to talk about something really basic as, you know, when I was a kid and my mom would make meatloaf and then off I go to visit my aunt in Manhattan and she makes me a dinner of meatloaf and it didn't taste the same. I thought meatloaf was meatloaf. And is this also meatloaf? And suddenly realizing that there's different ways of making meatloaf. Or the times that I've gone, you know, some of my first times out of the country was in my early 20s, and I was backpacking in France, and realizing that the ways that I thought one should live their lives, it wasn't so restrictive. So you start seeing that the way that you've been acculturated can be really restrictive and that there's options that we weren't even aware of. So, and it isn't until we're in another culture and seeing how they do things that we say, oh, I guess I was pretty much fully indoctrinated into the American way or the Virginia way or, you know, however small you want to get into your world. Or, you know, I'd say my family way of making meatloaf. Oh, there's other ways of making meatloaf or other families don't even ever <laughs> eat meatloaf, you know, and that's so valuable. So to get out of that kind of provincial perspective. And I think that's what certainly the arts are bringing us toward. So when we start moving or maybe painting or maybe gardening, you know, whatever it might be, I think it brings us out of the restriction of our perception into the larger world. And then we find out we have choice. Mm. How wonderful. So, and so helpful for people who are experiencing suffering that they feel like they're suffering now and they will always suffer. Like, "Mm, no, no, there's some choice here. And it's worth investigating some options and looking at, as I said, transforming, or here we are with the planet becoming less 
habitable for us. Okay, well, as we said in the beginning, yeah, we can hang out in despair. That's an option. We can be in total denial. Kind of rather we didn't do that because that contributes to the demise. Or we can look for what opportunities, like what else is going on. You know, I see the pandemic as and I think you here, you've experienced it that way, as have I, to go deeper within, to connect deeper with who we are. So a lot of us did that. We just, you know, we were so-called stuck in our house and we were with ourselves and we weren't able to distract ourselves by all the usual cultural offerings. And some of us found joy, some of us found pain. And say, well, maybe it's time to do a little spring cleaning with this pain. And some of us did that. And I think that was a gift of the pandemic. You know, it was an opportunity that some of us took advantage of. I mean, I could very well have said, well, you know, I've lost my major source of income with my healing work. Woe is me. And I'm just only going to collect unemployment insurance. <laughs> but like, well, what else is possible? Oh, distant healing, remote healing. Oh, and how that just totally blew my mind and opened my mind to so much more of what is available. And I know I'm not the only one, you're not the only one to which this is available. I mean, yes, you are a sensitive, gifted person. I can hear that, Tonio. But I think it's available to all of us if we just kind of make one little step and kind of begin to open, begin to relax, or my word these days is soften into our being, and we find out our being is very malleable and porous. You use that word. I like that word too. Yeah. So getting back to the title of your book, Ecosomatics. Yeah. Describe those terms somatics in relation to ecosomatics and how how we can connect that with our our present time in the world with the cataclysmic crises yeah. we're facing. So I'll give you the kind of the quickie definition. So ecosomatics is a combination between somatics and ecology. But I'm going to go back to my book. This is in the very beginning of the book on the introduction Ecosomatics encourages us to ground in our body along with the body of earth. It's not either or, it's both. It encourages us to heighten our senses, to increase our innate natural intelligence. It asks us to place awareness on the ecology of our body tied to the flesh of earth. As we weather dramatic environmental changes and investigate what sustains us, we are urged to show up in our body more responsibly and engage ecosomatic listening that puts us in touch with all of nature. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. So, the theme of your book really is about thriving, learning to practice, and opening ourselves to the notion of the possibility and practice of thriving. 
with these extreme conditions that we're faced with. So how how do we develop a practice and how do we open up to the possibility of thriving under these kind of circumstances? Yeah. I mean, there's so many different ways, but I'd say, you know, if you're just starting, go out somewhere in nature and you don't even have to do this outside, but go ahead and go outside somewhere and just sit down, sit down beneath a tree or stand and focus on each of your senses. So just start looking, look at what's around you. Oh, look at, look at that leaf. Look at the shape of the leaf. Look at the color of the leaf or smell. What do you smell? Inhale or feel. So, you know, touch the ground. You know, a lot of us embodiment types talk about the importance of grounding. And in the course of writing this book, my experience of grounding has gotten even more developed. So I refer to, I talk about opening the window at the soles of your feet. And maybe you're standing, maybe you're sitting. And this is a meditation. And let's say this time you're, you're in your house. Maybe you're on the second floor. So open the soles, the energy of your body or the energy reach down through the floor, through the foundation to the earth. The soles of your feet are portals. So energy from the earth comes up through the soles, the arches of your feet. Let it just rise up to your ankles, to your knees, your hips, and to your torso, down your arms, your neck and head. At the same time that earth energy is coming in, your own, I could call it earth energy, but we'll call it your personal energy, is also going out through that same portal the bottom of your feet, the arches, more so than the whole foot, but it could be the whole foot, but I like to focus on the arches because they seem to have a particular sensitivity. And if you sit with that meditation for a while, and initially you guess you're just using your imagination, but eventually what was happening to me, I could feel the sensation. And I think, Tonio, you can feel the sensation too. So now you're breathing with the earth and you're increasing this partnership with the earth and yes you as a contact improv dancer you are dancing even if you're still you're dancing energetically with the earth what's happening just allow the dance let it go on for as long as you want and when it ends, and it's time to make a cup of coffee or go to work, that energy is still with you. And you have, in subtle or maybe profound ways, changed. And maybe you articulate it, or maybe it manifests in some other way. That's among the practices that I'm doing a lot lately, and listening, and it's amazing what, I mean, I've had trees tell me things. And is it the tree itself telling me? You know, that's kind of the logic mind working. 
So you've really got to work with the imaginal mind or the imagination mind. And then it becomes an avenue to increasing your, I'll call it bodily intelligence, somatic intelligence, ecological intelligence. So I would say that's a really potent practice. So talk more about how we affect each other and everything, even with our, our thoughts and our feelings. Yeah. So. Let alone our actions. Yeah. So there we are in a room with some people and stranger walks in. We just glance at them. We know nothing about them. We haven't processed them. But immediately we pick up on something about them. Oh, I think I'd like that person. Oh, I don't think I'd like that person. Or we walk into a room and say, oh, this room's got a really great energy about it. So we pick up on that. And I think most of us pick up on that. But, you know, in the same way that, you know, if a dog next door is barking nonstop, it does kind of impact my ability to concentrate if I'm writing and I'm really working on a hard passage. So that's a way that we recognize. But maybe my neighbor is meditating in their house or you're meditating several states away from where I live, Tonio. I may not pick up consciously on it, but I'm picking up on it. So I believe that every one of our actions Every one of our thoughts, every emotion has repercussions. So given that I'm aware of that, I try to operate under the do no harm and bless everything, even the dog barking <laughs> that's annoying me, you know, just because I'm aware of, am I putting out pollution or am I putting out, you know, a fragrant bouquet? And, and this gets back to the entanglement. So, you know, we're all connected and sometimes we pick up on it and sometimes we don't. And, you know, one of the most common psychic phenomena that so many of us experience is that many of us know who's calling us right before they call us. Or I have this thing that the phone's ringing and I know who it is and I say, whoop, you know, what a skill to have because we also have caller ID. But studies show that it's something like I can't remember the exact figure, but something like 70% of us experience that. So your loved one is thinking about you and you pick up on it. So we're all contributing and it's not just people, you know, so we are interacting with, I mean, the same thing is true with animals and I would say plants and I would say insects and fish. I mean, I think, you know, there is that whole web of interconnection. But no, we're not going to be how many billions of people are on the planet? And oh my God, do I want to be tuned into everybody? Oh my God, talk about being overwhelmed. I couldn't move. But we're all contributing to the field. We're all contributing to whether it's the energetic field or the atmosphere. I mean, most of us in North America just experienced, we breathed in the fire from Canada. Who would have thought that it would have traveled, that smoke would have traveled so far? And that was smoke that we could smell, that was smoke that we could see and breathe. 
but I think our thoughts and our energetic bodies are traveling too. I mean, that's what enables me to do the distant healing work because everything is always right here. So it's a matter of tuning in, picking up the remote, changing the channel. And I think now we're being called to do just that. Listen more deeply to oneself. Listen more deeply to the planet. Show some more compassion or empathy toward other beings. And that's where healing and connection occurs. And who wouldn't want to do that? Or that's where the possibility of, of healing occurs. Yes. Depending on what we're thinking, what we're engaging with, what, what our intentions are. And you also talk about, and you go into intentions and, and planting the seeds of intention toward the end of the book in relation to this ecosomatic relationship we have with everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so intention is incredibly potent. I mean, there's a, in the Hebrew language, there's the word kavanah, which is roughly translated as intention and is considered one of the most effective practices that you can do, set an intention because it establishes the course of energy. It establishes the course of mind. It establishes the course of action. And it may not go exactly as you imagine it, but it puts you in that direction. So, so important. So important. I didn't know if you had a passage you, you were referring to and you knew of. I'd be open to reading yeah, I don't have anything specific, but there was a poem that you you sent in your oh. email, if if that feels appropriate to you, or anything that occurs to you. Yeah, so I'll read this poem. So this is a poem it's called Embody Mind, and it's from my collection, Her Body Listening. This is how to enter your world. Tune symmetry, concentrically, humming the ohm, honing otherworldly skills. With stick shift unstuck, ride altitudes like Haya, mirroring and check widening views. This is how to enter yours eccentrically challenged, and segmentally smarter than you self-credit. Faith in paving ways and ripping out weeds. Gain in breath, easy rooted in wood, sky, and be. This is how to thrive. Not yours, nor mine, but all stories tender the reality of unreality, my argument not augmented over yours. We enable no key cozy peace, but pace on path with a village, atmospherically and proprioceptively extending 
the scope of ear rings and night winds. So that poem, like many of my poems, you can understand there's a lot of visual puns. So when you read it, you might see something. When you hear it, you'll see something else. And then, as you said in the beginning, there's a lot between the lines. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I love that. And I had to reread it again in a speaking voice to really embody those qualities yeah so yeah so it's great to hear you read it yeah and it's they're not always easy to read including for me because i have a lot of tongue twisting words but that's also what i'm attempting to do is kind of unstick the mind habits so that we're reading and perceiving differently so Stick shift unstuck. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, Cheryl, this has been an absolutely delicious conversation. Yeah, same with me. Delicious, delightful, kind of a non-physical contact improvisation with you. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. So, yeah. 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 And... I sense we could do this again, and there will be still as delightful and delicious. Yeah, yeah, I would love to. I mean, it was such a pleasure to talk with you. Well, same here. It's good to meet a uh, spiritual kin. Yeah. Because we're both doing the work. And like, how different would it have been if at 10 years old, when you were having your experiences and I was having mine, that there was someone who kind of got what we were doing? And we could talk about it and they could help us understand it or maybe not understand it, but just further the experience. And I think that's what, you know, you and I are doing for each other and what your podcast is doing for listeners is helping us to expand our experience and understand further than what our limited understanding has been. So thank you for these podcasts that you do and these wonderful conversations you have with people. Mm. And this conversation, I think, will really be helpful in that way oh. for listeners. And I just love, love this book so much. I mean, I spent so much time deeply engaged in it. And for the first time, it actually occurred to me, I could feel the channeling quality of your mm. writing and that I was tuning into the same energy, the same presence. Wow. Even though it was not conjoined in linear time. Right. So it was magical. Oh, thank and, you, Tonio. And wonderful. So thank you, too. That was Cheryl Pallant. She's an award-winning writer, poet, energy healer, somatic coach, and dancer and the author of several books, including Writing and the Body in Motion and Contact Improvisation. She teaches at the University of Richmond and leads workshops around the world. And her new book that we've been talking about is Ecosomatics, Embodiment Practices for a World in Search of Healing. And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. 
Thank you so much for listening. If you missed any of the show or would like to hear it again, you can find this and all Magical Mystery Tour shows at soundcloud.com slash WGDR. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other. 